You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. You must be calm when others are being too critical. You have to bring people together when others are turning their back and walking away. You'll communicate directly with people and not behind their backs. You'll deal evenly and gently with others when they fall into sin and not aggravated by too pompous a statement about their sin. You'll be calm. You'll not be an alarmist. You'll understand that sin is part of the way it is. And you'll just calmly work people back into agreement. You'll be against division of all kinds in the church. If you're looking for virtues that are long-lasting, there's one person that you should look to as a perfect example of these things. Pastor Tom's teaching today discusses how Jesus displayed the perfect mixture of virtues that when added up, equal true wisdom. So instead of wanting to be wise in the world's eyes, how about caring about what it looks like to be wise in God's eyes? How do you treat people? How do you speak of others? Hopefully, it's something like God's way. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he begins his message, Heavenly or Hellish Wisdom. We all know and we've all heard that the Christ child was born in Bethlehem. That nativity scene is etched in our minds. It's uh, part of the Christian remembrance of Christmas. We all know about that. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, and all the great songs that have been given to the church down through the years. There he is. He's baby Jesus. He's uh, laying In the manger, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. What an awesome scene and so much to contemplate looking at the baby in the manger. It's almighty God, almighty God in frail humanity. Yet we sometimes focus so much on the nativity at Christmas time, it eclipses the fuller meaning of Jesus's life. That scene with Mary, Joseph, and the baby was but a snapshot, just one picture of his life. There was so much more. Time was not frozen. Jesus did not remain a baby. Christ was taken back north to the Galilean highlands in Israel. He grew up. He spent much more time in Nazareth than he did in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary grew their family. They had sons and daughters, as the scriptures make very clear. Jesus was the eldest child. But what did he become? What was he like as he grew up? Luke chapter 2 documents, I would add, from eyewitnesses of his life, that as the child grew in Nazareth, he gained favor. He gained favor with God and with men. He was a much loved and respected youth. Imagine that. How many youth are much loved and respected? He was that way. There was no child like him. There was no teenager that distinguished himself like this boy. We possess only that one account of him during this phase. At 12 years of age, he was resolute. He was unwavering to do the will of the Father in heaven. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? What kind of a, what kind of a teenager says that? Nobody speaks that way. Jesus did. The next event recorded in his life 18 years later as he approached John the Baptist in the Jordan River to be baptized. Why? He didn't have any sin to confess. When John objected to baptizing him, Jesus said, permit it, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then as he was immersed in the Jordan River, and yes, it was an immersion, that's what the word baptism means, and he came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended in some miraculous form. And a miraculous voice, only one of three times in the life of Jesus, came out of the sky and said what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's different. And we know the rest. Four writers chronicled his public ministry. He triumphed over the temptation in the wilderness. Then he commenced his public teaching ministry. 
Every single time we get a glimpse of Jesus doing something or saying something, we're amazed. It's proper to conclude there's nobody like him. There has never been anyone that has lived his life. Not now, not then. Napoleon Bonaparte, though he was evidently critical of organized religion, seemed to have a fascination with Jesus, especially during the time he was exiled. I know men, he is quoted as saying, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. The life of Jesus confirms to us he truly was from above. He's not like us down here below. He came down from heaven. He came down to show the men of earth how to live. But do you understand the meaning of his life? Do you understand the meaning of his mission? He comes as the Holy One. He's not coming to approve our pride, our lusts, our perversion. He came with love. He did not come with the animosity of divided humanity. He came with wisdom from above to show us how to live. No one else knew. He did. It's not the wisdom of men. It's the wisdom from above. That is what we have been learning. If you open to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we're going to think about true wisdom from above. And I submit to you, as I've already said, the life of Jesus Christ embodied that wisdom. He indeed is wisdom incarnate. James 3, I'll read the whole passage. We'll focus on verses 17 and 18 today. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, James here wisely teaches us that true wisdom is seen in her deeds. If you want to know a wise man, a wise woman, look at how he or she lives. This scripture contrasts those two kinds of wisdom it urges us to abandon the one. It's not really wisdom. It's what people talk about as wisdom down below. It's not what Christ came to show us. Instead, we're to embrace that other kind of wisdom, the greater wisdom, the wisdom from above. That will mean a completely new way of thinking, transforming the way we think about what is true and what is right and what is why. I mentioned before our outline, there are three ways that James is attempting to convince us to embrace this wisdom from above. First, in verse 13, which we already covered, he challenges the self-professed wise to step up and demonstrate that. Second, he unmasks that wisdom from below. He gives it all of its characteristics so we can kind of see behind the mask what it's really like. Don't listen to the sweet speech, the orator. Don't, don't look at the face, so to say. Look at how that person has lived and you'll know whether they're wise or not. Today we get to focus on the positive side in verses 17 to 18. This is where James magnifies that wisdom that is from above, the wisdom from above. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. We'll focus on that. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, 
without hypocrisy. And the seed is fruit as righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a string of pearls we have set before us today. A holy list, we could call it, displaying how wisdom garnishes the godly. Scripture exhorts us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. It exhorts us to think on things that are excellent and noble and true and lovely. Surely we have been afforded that blessing today to focus on these attributes. Wisdom from above. Of course, what does that mean? That means wisdom from heaven. That's what is above. It's the perfect perspective. If you could just have the mindset that allows you to think the way the people in heaven would think, the way God thinks, that would be great. Well, here you have it, actually. It's come down from heaven to instruct us. It's the perfect perspective. From our own earthly perspective, we get things messed up. So we have to look above. Heaven is above from our perspective on earth, and it has to come down to us. By the way, there's a lesson there already about wisdom. Wisdom's source is not down here on earth. We don't find someone sitting under a tree and meditating or someone writing a book on philosophy and then telling us what wisdom is. They don't know. They start with ignorance. They can only end with ignorance. That's all they have. Philosophy and earthbound education just engages in creative, creative guesswork. That's all it is. And then it colors it with fancy words, and we think, boy, that person is wise. But it ends up right back in the pond of ignorance. It cannot rise above what it does not know. The Christian religion is not so bound. We're not bound by the limitations of other worldviews. The others start down here and try to rise and go nowhere else. Christianity starts in the heavens and comes down here to us and tells us what is true. And by the way, that is how we can justify our knowledge. They cannot justify their knowledge. We can because it goes to the greater mind who knows all things. And when he speaks, he knows what he's talking about. And every ear should listen. We have knowledgeable revelation from above. And God knows everything, real and contingent, and tells us what is true. Jesus Christ himself came down from heaven. He's central to all of that understanding and all of that wisdom. To understand Jesus, you have to travel back even before the manger, before his birth. When John begins his gospel, it's not as Matthew and Luke do. He begins it this way. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's divine. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John writes further on, that word who is God became flesh. He became a human being, a true human being, and he lived among us. And he, he goes on to say, we touched him, we handled him, we heard him, we ate with him, and we saw his glory. We saw his character. We understood what wisdom from above was. We saw how he lived, and then we wrote it down for you. It's marvelous. As the carol expresses, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What is that word from heaven like? What was Jesus really like? We know he did a lot of healings. We know he, he did a lot of teaching. We know he walked a lot of miles. But what was, what was it really like to be around Jesus, to see him, just in all the day-to-day -day operations? Do you wish you could see that? They could have been there just to see all the stuff that's maybe not written in the Bible, to see all just the simple interactions he had with people. Well, actually, there's a lot of that in the Gospels, and a lot can be picked up from that. What was he really like? 
Well, I submit to you that this string of eight pearls here, so to say, tells us the character of Jesus Christ. It tells us what true wisdom is from above. It tells us what Jesus Christ was really like to be around. If you could be around him, these are the eight characteristics that you would see about him. By the way, it says in Colossians 2.3 that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Know him, look at him, study him, you'll see wisdom, you'll understand knowledge. Now, this string of pearls, as I'm calling it, is similar to the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Also, if you're, if you're careful and observant, you'll see it's similar to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. James, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and a lot of his writing, a lot of his imagery is similar to that of his brother. By the way, the same is true with Jude as well. It kind of ran in the family, and you could see that they they'd speak similarly, James learning these things, of course, from Jesus. So let's bring each of these pearls, so to say, out and look at it, see its beauty, think about it, and think about Christ. We're going to consider its beauty, see how Jesus demonstrated, and then a little bit of exhortation to ourselves to live that way. What's the first jewel? It's purity, right? Put right at the front. James marks this one as the preeminent characteristic. Purity is the fount, in other words, from which all the other attributes will flow. Without purity, don't even bother with the rest of the attributes. You can't have them. This one is necessary. Purity is the Greek term hognos, and it means undefiled, clean, innocent of moral wrong, without pollution. This was a word that was often used in religious settings, both by the Hebrews and even by pagans in their pagan religions. It would refer to the purity that was needed to enter into the temple and begin worshiping. You didn't go worship a deity until you first cleansed yourself. So actually, this reference is not primarily to sexual purity, although that would be included. It's about the purity and the motive of the heart. One of the psalmists writes it this way, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And he goes on, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Clean me up. That's this. That's hognos. Purity is the opposite of the tainted and dirty and self-seeking motives of the wisdom that we find down here below that we talked about in verses 14 through 16. Purity is wonderful. Purity receives a blessing from Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see God because God is pure and he's holy. If someone is wise, they are pure in their motives. They're not cunning. They're not angling for a way to take advantage of other people. They give of themselves without respecting anything in return. That's a pure motive. A wise man is like that. And he does not compromise. He does not have people around him pushing him with expediency to make a certain decision that would not be pure. No, he says, no, I will not, for expediency's sake, violate my purity. He's wise. It doesn't matter if others are shouting in his ear. It doesn't matter if there's a herd of people saying, this is the way we go. He will not. He does not follow worldly entertainment. He does not pollute his soul. Rather, as James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to demonstrate love to those who are in need, great need. Well, of course, Jesus Christ embodied this purity. Would you agree? 1 John 3.3, everyone who has the Christian hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. Jesus Christ is pure. He is the holy child from above. The angel answered and said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Holy child, pure, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was holy from conception. We are not. We sing, 
infant holy, infant lowly, lying cradled in a stall. But of us, we say, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. What a difference. You would not find in the mind of Christ any impurity. We are constantly trying to renew our minds and have purity in them. Purity is the wisdom that we should aim to emulate. How do you do it? Set yourself apart. You'll never be pure following the crowd. You must set yourself apart from all of the worldliness and sin in the world. You'll never be pure if you don't. Earthly wisdom indulges in sin. You have to pull yourself away from it and live for God. When we get to chapter 4, verse 8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's how to do it. That's the first pearl. It's a beautiful one and it's necessary for all the others. Maybe it's the largest pearl on the chain if you're visualizing it. The second pearl is peaceable. Jesus was this way too. This one's put second, I think purposefully, because it's even accentuated in verse 18 when we get down to that. What does peaceable mean? I think you already know. It means pertaining to peace, loving peace, bringing peace, working for peace. It is the opposite of the competitive and ambitious spirit which describes the wisdom of this world in verse 14. That kind of wisdom leads to backbiting, to jealousy, to disorder. Hey, how come I can't get my way? There's always discord and division where that kind of wisdom is. If we look ahead to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that clearly peacemaking is needed in the arena of relationships, which I think is what James is primarily talking about here. People fight and quarrel all the time. We need peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who want reconciliation. They do not want conflict. They don't want to take sides. They want to bring sides together. That's what a peacemaker does. Selfish acts promote and perpetuate conflict. Peacemakers understand that if we're going to get anything done and if it's going to be good, we have to bring people together. Harmony is needed. Jesus was the great example of that. You ever thought about the 12 disciples, how different they were? One was a zealot, one was a tax collector, another fisherman. Did they get along? He made them get along. He's a peacemaker. Look at the church today. There's black and white. There's, there's rich and poor. There's young and old. There's every ethnic background that's there. That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing people together. That's what he does. When he comes back, he's going to have that title, the Prince of Peace. Why? Because after he wins his war, peace will be ushered in by a war. There will be peace all over the globe for the entire thousand years. He'll be the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah's prophecy of the child to Israel says. He will visibly reign and there will be peace everywhere. Imagine that, peace everywhere. Today they cry for peace. They, they create the UN to get peace. They have negotiations to get peace. They never get peace. The Christmas message is not peace on earth. It is actually peace to those with whom he is pleased, literally, is how it says. There will never be peace on earth until he returns again. And then he will bring that peace. He's the prince of peace. Until then, his followers still work for peace in every way that they can. When violent men make war, men of peace step in and work for a righteous solution. If you're a peacemaker in your family or in the church, you will not take sides in a dispute. You'll bring truth and righteousness and love to each conflict, and you will be the bridge back to harmony. You will restrain discord when you hear it. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, and it's not always possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That includes ladies, by the way. That's how the Bible works. Be at peace with all women, too. You must be calm when others are being too critical. You have to bring people together when others are turning their back and walking away. You'll communicate directly with people and not behind their backs. 
you'll deal evenly and gently with others when they fall into sin and not aggravated by too pompous a statement about their sin. You'll be calm. You'll not be an alarmist. You'll understand that sin is part of the way it is. And you'll just calmly work people back into agreement. You'll be against division of all kinds in the church. You'll recognize that Jesus put everyone in the church on the same team. We're all on the same team. A peacemaker is a unity protector. At work, you will not jump on the popular bandwagon against the less popular person. No one likes them, and so you find it easy to join the gossip against them. No, you will not gossip. If you want peace, you'll work for righteousness. Those two attributes, peace and righteousness, always kiss. They love each other. The third pearl in the string is gentleness. Well, we kind of covered this one back in verse 13, so I won't say as much about it. But actually, it's a slightly different word that is used. It's a little bit difficult to translate into English. It means be willing to yield yourself to what others want. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Be willing to yield yourself to what other people want. No way. When I go home, I want it the way I want it. Well, then you're not this. You see? You're not this. If it has to be your way, then you're not this. Sometimes it's translated, be considerate, be courteous, reasonable, or kindly, or fair, or moderate. It involves respecting the feelings of other people, thinking first about what your words and actions will mean to other people. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. That's the opposite. Unreasonable, stubborn, too demanding, driving people, harsh, stern, difficult to get along with, nitpicky. A truly wise person is not that way. A truly wise person is gentle in all of his dealings with other people. A gentle answer turns what? Away wrath, right? Harsh words stirs up anger. 1 Timothy 3.3 tells all overseers they must be gentle in dealing with people because they'll have to deal with a lot of people. Again, Christ is the wondrous example. From the meek and mild child in the Bethlehem cave, and yes, it was a cave, to the gentle teacher on the hillside. Jesus was a delight to be around. Jesus was a magnet with his graciousness, his kindness, his generosity. People wanted to be around him. Yes, he was convicting, but they wanted to listen to him. When the words fell from his lips, they were amazed how he spoke. He was a delight. He didn't push people away. He drew them in. Are you like that? Do you draw people in? Matthew 12, 19 describes his character. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not loud and obnoxious. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He'll be gentle. As king, Jesus has every right to be loud and angry against those who are opposing his reign. Every right to do that. But he's not stern. Nor does he chide us when we act foolishly and, and don't listen to his teaching. He overflows with graciousness. You know, his 12 apostles could easily have been dumped. I mean, you, you check out those guys in the Gospels and you're like, when are they ever going to learn? There are plenty of women around he could have chosen from that were catching the spiritual message faster than those, those numbskulls. They were constantly learning like, we don't get it. We don't get it. Why did he pick them? They were by no means an excellent lot, and yet he stayed with them. He developed them. He saw what they would become, and he put up with what they were. That's this. That's this kind of attribute. Oh, those kind of people are nice to be around, aren't they? 
You're thinking of someone in your own mind right now. I know someone that's like that. That's a blessed person. Love them, care for them, hang around them. How far you will get in your relationships depends on how willing you are to bend with others. You'll have better relationships that way. How much you can hold your words back until you can say the words sweetly, right? The heart of the wise man instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness. Well, I could say it this way and I could say it at this timing, but those won't work well. I'll save it for this moment in this setting and I'll say it this way, then they'll listen. That's wisdom. There are many thoughts on what wisdom entails, but what Pastor Tom talked about today is wisdom from above, meaning from God. This is not how to best invest your 401k or the greatest self-help strategy out there. Wisdom from above is all about how to have characteristics that reflect Jesus more and more. Being pure, peaceable, and gentle are some virtues that Pastor Tom mentioned today, and he shares more next time. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. As Pastor Tom continues in our next edition, he'll teach about the remaining pearls of wisdom that are mentioned in the book of James. Essentially, they are things that go against your natural sinful nature. They're things that exemplify a life that responds in a godly and kind way. Not looking out for yourself is number one. This can be hard to do on your own, so that's why it's important to rely on God for His wisdom. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.